This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. I want to thank our sponsors, Mickey Fins, Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. Um, another edition of, of No Stop Lights, uh, Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party is with us. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Happy to be here, man. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm fine as frog here. Yeah, we don't, we don't have, <laughs> we don't have breaks to take in this thing, so we can ramble about you. You're a man of many words. I'm a person of many words, so we'll, <laughs> we'll see where this leads. First, I want people to get to know who Drew McKissick is. Yeah. I mean, obviously, they know you as a political official. Mm-hmm. That, that, I mean, th- there's a lot more to you than that. Sure. So, so give me kind of the cliff note of who you are, mm-hmm. where you come from. And what you believe in. Uh, born and raised outside of Columbia. Uh, lived there all my life other than time down in Charleston, College of Charleston. Uh, got involved in politics at a young age, uh, from writing letters to the editor when I was in high school. To, you know, I, I figured out I, I was, I was a, um, a marginal student, let's say. Uh, I was the first person in history in my uh, school that ever failed typing class, by the way. I, I had to take it over again in order to graduate. Uh Government class was the first class I ever had that was straight A's without cracking a book. I thought, well, I need to do this for a living. You know, so I ended up going to college, major in political science, uh, get hooked up with college Republicans, young Republicans, run campaigns, worked in the Pat Robertson campaign back in 1988. That, you know, got the the uh, the bug, so to speak. Um, go forward from there, doing campaign work, grassroots lobbying work, organizing, then working with the party, and then with the groups and with the party. and. You know, I've kind of worked inside and outside of the establishment, if you will, at different times. And uh, as a friend of mine says, it's kind of like uh, uh, being outside the building, throwing rocks at the at the establishment, and then you're in the building, and then you're catching the rocks. You know, so you see the problem from both sides, kind of. You know, uh, and I've got it gives me a little bit more well-rounded experience with you know who it is that we need to get engaged in what we're doing in order to be effective, in order to to make a difference, which is at the end of the day why we're here or we're just wasting our time um so you know worked in that for 35 years now uh got all the way to 47 years old uh without uh, managing to get married so it took me 47 years to get all the good out of being single uh, got married and found a wife who's willing to put up with this we just had our seventh wedding anniversary back in june and she had a note by the coffee maker that morning when i got up <clears throat> said um uh, three home renovations, four campaigns for state chairman, one campaign for co-chairman, and two Boykin Spaniels, and I need a vacation. <laughs> so she's put up with it, so she, but she enjoys it, So uh, and I enjoy it thoroughly. But politics gets in your blood, Drew. It does. I mean, it, it's it intoxicating. Does. It really it and truly, it's, um, I mean, I, I've done a lot of things in my life, and, and politics got in my system, and I couldn't get it out of my system. You mentioned the word establishment, yep. and I made notes, and I don't have any ironclad way of proceeding other than we'll kind of make it up as we go. But, but you're in a party today mm-hmm. that has disagreements sure. about net negative, net positive of the establishment. First of all, from your perspective, mm-hmm. what do you think of when I say political establishment? Oh, good gosh. Yeah. I mean, a thousand different definitions it depends on who you're talking to at what point in time. I, I kind of make the joke about, uh, uh, you know, people throw the term rhino around, you know, and, and for a lot of folks, it seems to be you know, rhinos or anybody who, who has been here five minutes longer than you have, you know, or the establishment is anybody who's been here longer than you have, uh, you know, well, all right. Yeah. You can, you can make a case that a lot of the folks who, who, uh, are in office at any given place in time, you know, are more responsible maybe for whatever the problems are than you are, but it doesn't mean they didn't get there for the same reason you did want to try to change something. You know, I mean, uh, uh, 
you know, I think it's important that uh, we also have a little bit of uh, appreciation for the folks who have gone in to try to blaze the trail to make changes. Uh, and, you know, I mean, even in the Republican Party here in South Carolina, I mean, it, it didn't all get this way just when I walked on the scene. We've been steadily building for years. A lot of folks came before me at the state level, a lot of good folks at the county level who did a whole lot of hard work to get us where we are now. Uh, have some of them occasionally been part of a problem? Yeah. Have, uh, have a lot more of them done a whole lot of work to try to make changes? Yeah. Uh, you know, when we get involved, we've got to have a little bit of perspective and appreciation for who's there and what they've done, what they've helped to do, uh, rather than just be quick to think anybody, you know, who was here before me is part of the problem. I mean, my, my attitude is I'm glad you're here. Uh, thank you for showing up. we got some work to do. Is the opposite of establishment populism? Does yeah, populism no. by necessity threaten establishment? No, I don't think so. <clears throat> because, uh, you know, to, th that would then presume that anybody who would have a, a quote, uh, you know, populist uh, viewpoint uh, had not done anything to be a part of the establishment. Well, you've got some folks who are, sure. you know, part of the political establishment who have populist points of view. Does that mean that they're a part of the problem? Well, no, you know, so, yeah, I, I think, we can we can take labels a little bit too seriously sometimes, and I get it. You know, labels are sort of political shorthand. You know, we try to pigeonhole people here, there, and the other, and maybe makes it easier for us to, you know, kind of understand the game and who's where and what seat they're sitting in and what they're trying to do. Uh, but you know, you can take that a little bit too far and let that color your thinking and uh, um, you know who you will or won't work with, and it might make you less productive. I went and saw the movie several weeks back with my wife, uh, Oppenheimer. Saw that, yeah. And I mean, it was a very intense three hours in a theater. Yep. But 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 my my takeaway from that was that there's an unbelievably brilliant man who understands things beyond my comprehension. Mm -hmm. But it's really about raw energy, mm -hmm. and how do we harness or not this raw energy? Do we take this this scientific breakthrough and contribute to the betterment of mankind or not? Mm -hmm. We eventually. The Manhattan Project came out of that. Hiroshima mm -hmm. Nagasaki uh, mm -hmm. came out of that. The end of a war came out of that. But, but right. m m you know, many thousands of people were, were um, b b basically vaporized Correct. from the planet. I'm not equating populism to the splitting of an atom. Mm -hmm. But there is a rawness mm -hmm. about populism. Mm -hmm. There is a, um, an uncontrollability about populism. Is it your job to try and not put populism in its place, mm -hmm. but to harness that energy, yeah. integrate it yeah. into a political party, and, and effectively win elections? I think part of uh, what sometimes you can define as populism or people who would think of themselves as populists, people you might call populists, uh, are just, you know, folks who have become disconnected from, you know, what we would think of as the establishment or from folks who may be in leadership and disconnected in the sense that either the folks that are there now are not really addressing everything that they care about. And, you know, I've talked about this before, you know, I think just using the example of, you know, uh, uh, when Trump first ran back in 16 and the, 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 the fact that the, the beltway crowd, if you will, Republican and Democrat who had gotten so far away from the American public Republicans who had gotten away from the base in terms of where they were on immigration, on globalism, et cetera. Uh, so, I think a lot of the folks who would fit in that populist category would be folks who would say those folks aren't talking about those issues. And, you know, the first candidate who does, and in a way that's, you know, effective and authentic and, you know, stays on message, you know, cuts through with that crowd. 
Does that mean that those folks don't also believe other things that are part of what we would think of as tenets of conservatism or the Republican platform? No. I think, you know, they, they're folks who are, you know, uh, we would think of as Christian conservatives sitting in a Baptist church somewhere who are also, you know, touched off by those issues. And you got other folks uh, who you might think of as, um, you know, more moderate Republicans, so, but who care a whole lot about immigration and so forth because how much money it costs this country. I mean, so the categories aren't always as neat as we like to think that they are. Um, and sometimes, yeah, that just makes uh, this job a little bit more difficult because you but, can't but, have the shorthand all the but time. But you would agree, I think, that it's turned the Republican Party into this weird coalition. At, at, at times, mm-hmm. I think I understand it. At other times, I'm like, no, I, I don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. I have historically believed as a Republican that the Democrats were the pro-worker party. You know, labor unions mm-hmm. and, and you know, um, minimum wage was a big issue to them. Yeah, right, right. Is, that, is there an evolution in the Republican mm-hmm. Party? Forget populism for a mm-hmm. second. Mm-hmm. When it comes to policy initiatives and where the priorities are going to be, is this party going to advocate for, I guess, in essence, the American working class? And if so, how do we do that? Well, I think, yes, I think you're going to see, and you are seeing, have been seeing, the Republican Party uh evolve some in terms of, or rather, the base of support of the Republican Party. Better way to, that's a better way to put it. Excuse me. The base of support of the Republican Party has evolved into a more working class oriented party than it used to be uh, because of two things, primarily, the issues that the Republican Party and conservatives within the party talk about, how they talk about them, and also the evolution of the Democrat Party. And the way that they have moved toward more of what we consider elites and global elites and uh, wokeism and everything that's put it all on steroids and so forth for the last uh, 10 years and five years. Um, So I think it's it's more of a thing of the base of the support of the party changing than it is the party changing to try to attract different crowds or the other. Uh, I think that crowd is becoming more attracted by messages they're hearing being articulated. it's, It's like, you know. I use the example of, you know, kind of when you, when you got a, uh, you get a new puppy and, you know, eventually you figure out when the puppy's laying over on its back, eventually when it gets comfortable enough to be where it is and it'll lay on its back and sleep, you know, or whatever. And you can find that spot on his belly and you scratch it and that back leg starts to kick like that. You know, you got to find the thing that really sets people off that find that, that, you know, where, where's that itch that needs to be scratched. And you've got more of the working class Americans, I think that are getting their itch scratched by what they're hearing from Republicans. And that's then, you know, the center of gravity begins to, you know, move a little bit and other folks are attracted by what they're hearing. Uh, I think there's still more room for growth on that side. You're going to see more of that. And again, I think it is being pushed more by what you're seeing from the Democrat side of the aisle. You know, it is repelling those people. Uh, It's kind of like the, you know, two, two North Poles of a magnet repelling one another. Uh, and that's been, again, I think just sort of amped up on steroids here over the course of the last five to six years. I mean, it's not just what we have thought about and talked about. You and I have talked about a lot is, uh, economically populist issues. Let's talk about the debt. Let's talk about immigration, talk about globalism and trade. Now we're talking about, you know, whether or not, you know, parents ought to be notified if, you know, your boy wants to have something cut off his body somewhere or something like that. I mean, you know. Stuff, again, you wouldn't have taken a bet five years ago that we'd be talking about now. This has just gone completely off the rails. And I think that's why you see politics now become so vitriolic and so confrontational because the stuff we're arguing over now is not within the margins anymore. It's fundamental stuff. 
And, and, and a debate that we're having within mine and your party. I mean, and I go back to Trump, Trump showing up. I mean, I, I think you and I talked off the air. From where I come from, it was pretty easy to see Trump coming. Yeah. Uh, the working class, rural America, um, right. some of the um, right. so, some of the declining opportunities that were afforded to those people, and they felt a bit left behind, mm-hmm. and they felt the Republican Party, okay, they've advocated for some of my social issues, but economically, I'm not sure they've had mm-hmm. my best interests at heart. So, so when Trump shows up, and and then people ask me about his stances, and I said, look, I'm not sure where he stands on a lot of things, but he says things that I think need to be said about immigration trade in China. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand it gets a lot more complicated than that, but but where are we as a party in agreeing to disagree mm-hmm. on immigration trade and China? Where do mm-hmm. we go? I mean, obviously, you just mentioned how radical the left has become. Mm-hmm. And I don't think every Democrat's crazy. Right. But I think some of those liberals have, have really taken control of a party and offered up some pretty radical proposals. Mm-hmm. But when it comes back to America first, and that's a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's let, let, let's, let's address China in a way that advantages the working class, mm-hmm. immigration and, and trade. So, so walk me through, as a party official, what you think your responsibility is to help navigate that complex debate. Well, you know, uh, everybody's got a different role to play in politics. Uh, you know, you've got elected officials and you've got what I would call uh, party mechanics. You know, I'm a mechanic. So my job is not necessarily to be, uh, you know, the mouthpiece who's trying to bring people into the fold. Now, not that I don't have those conversations. I do. That's not my primary job. My primary job is working behind the scenes to put together the the infrastructure that needs to be in place to build what I would call the generic Republican get-out-the-vote machine so that whoever – Republicans at large decide to nominate for office, which is the most important thing a party can do is choose someone to represent them on the ballot in November. And we do that. And our part of our job is putting together the process to make that happen. That's what we're doing at the national level right now with all the 50 different states doing our, whether it's presidential primaries or caucuses and what the rules are going to be and how it's all going to work. You know, standing back, letting people pick the candidate, pick the horse, because we get involved and it's going to be hard to put it all back together again. You know, once we got a nominee, uh, but in the meantime, doing what I call, and I have this conversation oftentimes, let's say, uh, with uh, major donors. I, you know, as RNC co-chair now, I'm, every other day I'm on the phone calling people from California to wherever who might give, you know, uh, $40,000 and $50,000 checks or whatever. And we'll have these conversations, you know, some that absolutely don't want one candidate or the other or absolutely are going to be with this one no matter what. How do I bridge that gap? And we have these conversations. And part of what I have to do is explain no matter who our candidate is at that level, the presidential level and on down, they're all going to want a party that is healthy enough to help get out the vote whenever they're on the ballot in November. Uh, they're all going to want to make sure we got the infrastructure in place that we've hired and trained staff in the different States around the country that are going to be key in a presidential race. And you think of, you know, like we could probably take a bet right now, bet our house on how 42 States are going to vote. Eight of them was where that presidential race is going to be decided. Most likely. Senate races that are key and in the balance, some congressional races, you know, but the party's job, you know, when you think this is part of the problem and you encounter this, I know doing your show all the time because, you know, everybody's not a political activist and a junkie. Most are. Thank thank the Lord. They're not people out there doing productive stuff. Right. Uh, You know, so when they think of the Republican party, 
who knows what they're thinking about that given point in time. They might be thinking about something some elected official said or did that made them happy or made them mad, usually that made them mad. And, well, you know, the party needs to da, 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 fill in the blank. Okay, were well, you talking about some elected official? Are you talking about the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, the Republican National Committee, the, the state GOP, the county GOP? All are different organizations, none of which are accountable to the other. You know, we all have different roles in doing our thing. Um, so when you're talking to me specifically as a state party chairman and as co-chairman of the RNC, that comes with a very specific job. My job is to build the infrastructure to make sure that we are able to turn out the vote and do what I call the unsexy work of politics. It is the work that people usually don't pay attention to unless it doesn't get done. Then they're paying attention to it. Well, y'all weren't able to do so-and-so and get out and vote and da 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 Well, you know, and when we mess up, you're right. When we do our job right, the candidates will take credit for one great campaign they ran. Yes, it's but but our job is to do the unsexy and, work. And it's not to decide where the party is on China or where the party right. is on immigration. Is it fair to say your job is to, once the party's leaders decide, mm -hmm. once the elected officials decide, yeah. this is where we believe we need to be on China, immigration, trade, then you help facilitate yeah. the, the logistical advantages that lead to successful right. elections? We Yes. And we've got, you know, we've got a platform. Okay. State party, we've got a platform. That, that, uh, and, that and is right. formulated how, Drew. Yeah. I hate to interrupt you, but yeah. how yeah. does that party platform become reality? All right. So at the state level, you know, we do that at our state convention, you know, once every so many years. Uh, the state party chairman, the last time we did it was about uh, three years ago. I appointed a platform committee of about 15 people who are representative of the party around the state who've been in the party a long time. They get together, looked at the platform we had. They suggest changes. The state convention adopts that. Uh, at the national party level, it's a little more complicated. Each state around the country, when we go to have the national convention in Milwaukee next year, the week before everything that happens you'll see on TV, a platform committee will meet. It is composed of one man and one woman from each state and territory around the country. Okay, so you'll have 112 people, I believe is the number, who will be the platform committee for the Republican National Convention. So when we elect our national delegates at our state convention next May, We'll elect 52 delegates total. Two of those people will be on the platform committee from South Carolina. They'll go up there a week in advance. They'll be presented with a draft of uh, ideas that have been put together based on the existing platform, suggested changes, some issues that, again, we wouldn't have taken a bet we'd be talking about today, like transgender, this, that, and whatever. We probably need something in there about that now. We need to address that. And, you know, and then we got the issue on trade and China and so forth. Where are we now? What does it say before? How do we all feel about this now? And of course, then by that time, you probably have a presumptive nominee. You know, so this this happens before we actually officially nominate somebody at the convention. Odds are, mathematically, you get to that point, and you know it's going to be this person or this person. Usually, uh, their campaign begins to put a bug in the people's ears who are on the platform committee, so to speak. You know, well, a candidate really feels this way about this and that. Sometimes that colors the language. Sometimes it doesn't. I, you know, famously back in uh, 1996, you know, Robert Dole had no appetite for platform stuff whatsoever. And when he didn't like what the platform committee was going to do, he's like, well, they can do what they want to, and I'm going to do what I want to. And that's basically in Bob Dole-esque fashion. You know, that's exactly what he said. Fine. Uh, but the platform applies not just to presidential campaigns, but we got congressional races, Senate races. So this is what the National Republican Party, how it feels about these issues at large. Uh, and then it'll be adopted by the full convention. In that spirit, and here's where I think you and I probably disagree a little bit, and that's fine. I I believe that that the party that we like to see in power mm -hmm. has an almost asymmetrical relationship 
between those who fund the party, mm -hmm. those who pay the bills that the party incurs to do mm -hmm. all these things, mm -hmm. helping win elections, and where the base is. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, we, we're spending a lot of time, and, and, I, and it's good for business. I mean, I do a radio show. It's good mm -hmm. for business to talk about this asymmetrical relationship. Mm -hmm. You don't believe that. You, you, uh, you, don't believe, you think there's, there's some, some disagreement there, there is. But, but it's not asymmetrical. But, but, but I think you would agree, and, and I think the numbers clearly show this, we, we, we need the establishment on board. Mm -hmm. We need the America Firsters on board. I'll leave that certain personality out of this. Yeah. And, and, and there, there seems to be a complexity there that has not historically existed. Well, now I wouldn't go so far as okay. that hadn't historically existed. But a couple of things. One, uh, as, again, as someone who talks to donors on a regular basis, from the $100 donors up to the people who write a $100,000 check, uh, I can tell you there's disagreement within that group of people. They're not a monolith. They are not monolithic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and different issues tickle different folks, you know, funny bone. Uh, now, you know, people who can write really big checks usually come to the ability to write really big checks because they got a fairly similar life experience in, in working in business and so forth. So they've got things that are, they spent more time dealing with and might be a little bit more important to them because of where they've been able to get to in life, you know, and what they've got to protect. You know, and what they what they think about, and you know, but as we think of again, this is where labels become a problem for us. When we think of the establishment as only being people who give money, uh, uh you know, you got a lot of grassroots activists who are part of the establishment too. You know, who've been there for a long time and worked in the party for a long time. So it's, it's not again as monolithic and easily easy to label. But you know, on the whole, if you want to say more donors maybe care more about a certain set of issues than just, you know, Joe Blow, who's out here on his tractor on the weekend, who happens to consider himself a Republican, sometimes that's true, you know. Uh, that doesn't mean they disagree necessarily all the time or even most of the time. But what it does mean is they've got different priorities. And priorities really come down to what's hitting you in the face on a daily basis. I mean, you know. Uh, what's the last pothole I ran, ran over or the last, you know, uh, bad conversation I had with my accountant because of some regulation that got changed somewhere or whatever, you know, those life experience, you know, and what people run into on a, on a daily basis. And that's why we come back to what are our basic principles? And that's just what's got to, got to, got us. The one, one of the issues and, and having run as a Republican, um, was the lack of diversity and the people I believe I could attract to cast a ballot in my favor it frustrated mm -hmm. me. I mean, I knew I had so much in common mm -hmm. with African-American voters and right. Hispanic voters sure. and working class voters, sure. but for whatever reason, they had a, an almost irrational loyalty mm -hmm. to, to the other party. It frustrated me. It discouraged yep. me, right. uh, to be honest with you. What are we, is that part of your responsibility um, to create a more diverse and more welcoming and more um, mm -hmm. successful uh, party because the country's changing? Part of what we do, and again, this goes back to affecting the mechanics. So part of the focus is uh, helping to engage with people who don't necessarily consider themselves a Republican to help them see our message and what we care about and how it impacts their life and try to draw them in to be part of what we're putting together, help our support campaigns or, you know, uh, early voting, et cetera. Um, so, yes, a couple things. Uh, so I worked for uh, two election cycles in the 14 and 16 cycle. Uh, doing uh, faith engagement for the RNC from, you know, uh, Maine down to Florida, out to Arkansas, uh, working with pastors and churches to try to get folks, uh, you know, engaged, registered to vote for one thing. A lot of folks sitting in church on Sunday ain't registered to vote. A huge percentage. Out of every, you know, way you could slice up the American public, the biggest piece of the pie that is a latent giant 
is the percentage of people sitting in churches on Sunday who aren't registered to vote or don't vote. Wow. If they were, if, if a third of them that aren't engaged were to actually get engaged at any given point in time, it'd be a political earthquake. Do we know why they become so politically inactive? It's not that they have become is that they have not been active. Okay. I mean, that's, and and again, I've had churches where, you know, pastors would say, well, no, you know, 90% of the people in my church are registered to vote and so forth. And then we would go and say, all right, well, you get a copy of your, uh, uh, you know, registry of members for the church and we'll bump it against the voter registration file and find out 20% of them are, you know, I mean, huge percentages of, them. and then what percentage don't vote? Half people are registered, don't vote in the average election, you know, and the average election is won or lost by 5% of the vote. By the time you get down to the local races, the number of people who are, who are picking who's, uh, in leadership in a lot of levels around this country is less than, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, one out of five or less, you know, one out of 10, in some cases. Uh, where you get school board races that are held at odd times, you know, the turnout's real low. And so the number of people who voted for the winner is mighty small. So just the, the, the potential impact that's actually sitting out there is tremendous. Now we talk about say African-American voters or Hispanic voters who have a lot in common with us from a working, you know, man standpoint, you're talking about, you know, working people type agenda, uh, very impacted by immigration, you know, folks who are able to come in across the border and work for cash under the table and, you know, outbid them on a job essentially, or, you know, undercut them. That hurts them financially. Uh, one of the biggest groups of folks that we've had in the last several years have been involved in pushing back against illegal immigration have been Hispanics who came in the country legally. They've got more to lose than folks in the black community. Uh, and I think that's part of what has hurt, you know, the Biden administration politically is they've, you've, you've seen the last couple of elections, what has happened and, and Trump, for instance, in 2020, got a bigger percentage of the black vote than any Republican has gotten nationally since Richard Nixon. Now, did you hear a lot about that? No. But what's that telling you? Again, those issues are starting to cut with a lot of the folks in the African-American community around the country. And as you point out, they have been previously so monolithically Democrat. You know, nine out of 10, you know, or better, you know, votes in, in a typical campaign would go to the Democrat candidate from the black community. Uh, and they have become so over-reliant on huge percentages of minority voters to the point where if they begin to lose a couple of points off of that, they're going to be in trouble. Uh, and again, our job, part of it is going to them and, so, and, and explaining how what we believe in matters to them. So from the RNC perspective, uh, mechanically, we've got, uh, uh, let's see, 35 to 40 community centers that we will be funding and did in the last cycle and will again this cycle to a greater degree uh, in targeted areas around the country. So I just went to the opening for RNC Community Center in McAllen, Texas, like a mile from the border. Uh, you know, for uh, we've got a congresswoman elected down there, first Republican in over 150 years in the last cycle, trying to hang on to that seat. So you've got a lot of, you know, Hispanic churches who will come in and do stuff in those community centers and uh, talk about voter registration and engagement. Um we got some inner cities around the country where, where we will be standing those up. Uh, you know, so going and taking the message to people who should be aligned with us and helping demonstrate to them how we are, uh, you know, you don't have to win them all, but you begin to chip away at that percentage when the other guys are reliant or just so overly reliant on it and taking them for granted, by the way, uh, it begins to make a big difference mathematically. Let, let, let's go down that road for a second. You mentioned some of these swing states, some of these independent voters, some of these people that have historically not voted Republican. Um, one, one of our front runners says the election was stolen. I, I refuse to say that. I think there were 
statistical anomalies that are hard to comprehend. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's kind of a, um, a diplomatic way of saying a certain thing. But there's no question that the $450 million Zuckerberg invested mm-hmm. was money well spent. M- maybe right. the most consequential dollars in the history of American elections. Right. Um, that was in 2020. Mm-hmm. What, what do you have to say to Republican voters and supporters or candidates who want to be encouraged that that's not going to happen again. What, what have we done to combat that, answer right. that, respond okay. to that? What would you agree with yeah. my analysis yeah. that that well, money was unbelievably important oh, in the 2020 presidential election? Zuckerberg's money, yes, had a big impact, no doubt about it. Um, so a couple things. So after uh, the 2020 election, uh, the RNC uh, appointed a uh, election integrity committee Okay, to go and look at what happened, where did it happen, why did it happen, uh, and make suggestions on what needs to be, what we need to change from an organizational standpoint, what we need to try to get changed from a legislative standpoint, and what we need to challenge legally. Okay, and to put those recommendations together. I was on that task force. Um, and after, um, uh, let's say, six or eight months, uh, fast forward to um, uh, the South Carolina General Assembly session in 21, you know, when we passed our election integrity bill here. Now, we didn't have the problems here in South Carolina. They had in a lot of other states around the country. That didn't mean we couldn't tighten up the laws we had to make sure that we never had those problems because what we were not was the focus of a lot of that type of activity. They focused that on a lot of what you would think of as presidential battleground states, which we're obviously not. Um, but, again, didn't mean that if we ever didn't, you know, might have gotten targeted with that kind of activity that couldn't have a bigger impact. So we tightened up our laws. We drew up. I want to say it was about uh, 17 recommendations or something like that. And other groups like Heritage Foundation and so forth had similar recommendations. At the end of the day, uh, I sat down with leadership here in the General Assembly. uh, And we had several bills that we put together because we were kind of concerned legislatively that if we had too much stuff in the bill, it might go down, you know. So, but at the end of the day, there was enough, you know, grassroots propulsion behind getting something done. Uh, that we were able to get, I think, 17 or 16 of those items into that one bill. I think Heritage, I believe, rates South Carolina's new election law as the third most conservative or safe, secure in the country. Okay, so we did our job here. Um, We don't control every state in the country legislatively. Uh, A lot of states, either legislatively or via regulation, made changes to their election laws. Uh, Some changes were made legally. Some were extra-legally. Some were by judicial fiat. You know, where you had judges get involved. Uh, and we ended up having problems. How do we fix that going forward? So, again, places where we control the legislature, we work to make changes here in South Carolina. Georgia did the same thing, you know, with their election laws about four or five months prior to us doing so here. Working in South with Carolina. Republican majorities. Yes, exactly. So, where we can work with a majority and get stuff done, we've done that. Uh, where. Uh, we have uh, uh, lawsuits that we can bring to make changes. We've done, I think, currently right now, the RNC itself, not counting third-party conservative groups and so forth, we, the RNC is engaged in over 50 lawsuits right now around the country about election laws in different places. Okay, so we are being super litigious because that, that, that's what this is coming to in this country now. You know, so, okay, if that's going to be the rules of the game, all right, we'll play. So bringing lawsuits where we need to, to try to change stuff, defending where we need to defend things that they're trying to do okay and then you have what can we do internally mechanically to account for all of this to try to make sure that the election is safe secure and that we win at the end of the day so that comes down to uh the biggest thing that we have done has been the rolling out what we call the bank your vote program uh, which will be a one-stop shop 
and a, a funnel, if you will, to catch anybody around the country who, you know, the mechanics of it will be signing a pledge to beat, vote early and beat Joe Biden. They do that. Depending on what state they're in, they're going to they're get tagged, you know, with follow-up emails and so forth for this is the election laws in your state. This is when, where, and how you can vote early in your state and have an impact. You know, and that's different in California than it is here in South Carolina. They've got ballot harvesting out there. They've got drop boxes out there. Uh, those are le- illegal here, thank Lord. But, you know, until we can change what the laws are in South Carolina, we got to play by the rules of the game or we're going to sit there and lose again. So uh, in, in California, for instance, you know, piggybacking on uh, what we just talked about a minute ago, community centers. So we've turned Republican community centers in California to places with drop boxes. Uh, we've worked with uh, conservative Hispanic churches in California to have election drop boxes in those churches because, you know, folks, well, they trust their pastor. They can leave their ballot at the church. So, you know, it's, it's a matter of making adjustments to whatever the laws are in those respective states to maximize our vote because especially in those key states, if we don't expand our voter pool, we are not going to win. We mathematically have to turn out more people reach down into what I would call low, low propensity Republicans. You know, that you got the folks who are going to crawl across broken glass to go vote on election day, you know, what we call the four out of four voters. They voted every time that the polls are open. And then you got the folks you got to poke with a sharp stick a couple of times to get them to turn out at the polls. Those are the folks we have to be focusing on now and uh, to get them to turn out, pledge to vote early, and just utilize whatever rules that, that, that are in place uh, to our advantage. This is such an improper way to ask the question, but I don't know any other way. And I'm pretty improper. <laughs> um, I mean, is, is it fair? I, I get, I understand what we've done to address the issue in states controlled by Republican general assemblies. That's a pretty easy yeah, fix. Right. But when you get to Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. when, when you get to some of these other states, um, in other words, is the Republican party today ready to fight fire with fire? Mm-hmm. In Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. in Fulton County, Georgia, mm-hmm. in Maricopa County, uh, Maricopa County um, you, you talked a second ago about, you know, the church goer not being as politically active as you would expect them to be. I got to mm-hmm. believe that a lot of people who m- make faith as a big part of their life mm-hmm. just don't want to be a part of that. It's mm-hmm. so nasty and vitriolic mm-hmm. to use yeah. to use your word. But but are we as a party ready to fight mm-hmm. fire with fire in some of these places mm-hmm. that, that appear to be ballot harvesting and unsolicited mail-in ballot chain of custody. I mean, I could go on and on and you know the language better than I do, but, but our, I think our viewers and listeners would Mm -hmm. want to know that, that the, the RNC is committed to being as aggressive in combating those issues in those places that we weren't in 2020. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. We are light years ahead of where we were in 20 right now. Uh, And I, and and ahead of where we we were in 20, I mean, did we expect, what happened to happen? Nope. And then was gonna, yeah. I'm not saying the election was stolen. I don't have any idea, but but I do no. know that things happen in some places that are hard to explain. I, I think you know COVID threw everybody for a loop, and Democrats use COVID as an opportunity to change election laws to game the system. Again, a few places legislatively, more often bureaucratic or judicial fiat. Uh, essentially, you know, not changing the rules the way you're supposed to change the rules. You know. Uh, and using, you know, an emergency is a reason to do that. Uh, and then when you add to that, you know, you pointed out Mark Zuckerberg and all the money he showered on local county election commissions that just happened to be Democrat counties so they could do more getting people registered to vote. Oh, wow, that's that's nice. Well, he just wants to give money to government and help them do their job. Well, you know, 99 out of 100 places that he spent money were Democrat-run counties, you know. Coincidence? Probably not. Uh, 
you have a lot of states, though, including ours, that passed a ban on any outside money coming in to fund, uh, you know, county election commissions and government in general. Um, but yes, are we better off? Are we prepared to fight fire with fire? Yes, because again, I think it goes back to three things: legislative, judicial, uh, uh, legal, and then organizational. Uh, as I pointed out, legally. We're engaged in over 50 lawsuits. You've got other groups out there, a center for, you know, uh, election integrity uh, run by a great outfit and a great lawyer there named Cleta Mitchell. Uh, you've got other outside groups from like Ken Cuccinelli runs one and some others uh, that take on specific lawsuits around the country, you know, and either sometimes defensive, sometimes offensive. Uh, and then you've got what's happening legislatively where it can. Uh, working with great state legislators at the local level around the country. But then you've got the places where you don't control it and you can't necessarily sue your way out of it. All right, these are the rules. How can we exploit these rules to go win in this play? And I'll point out, by the way, um, using 22 as an example and answer, to answer your question, um, nobody a year ago would have bet real money that it would have been California and New York that would have provided the margin in new House seats to give Republicans a majority in the House of Representatives. And that's what happened. How did we do that in California? Just like I was talking about a minute ago. The ballot harvesting, drop boxes, the early mail-in ballots and so forth, especially in the religious, you know, conservative Hispanic community. Uh, up in New York, some of the same thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think we were slow uh, to catch on to that game. And, they, and, and part of it is a, 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 and I get the hesitance, don't get me wrong, of folks within our own base who, you know, I just want to vote on election day. I believe everybody ought to vote on election day, none of this early voting stuff, et cetera, et cetera. In the ideal world, yes, you are right. Uh, and I'll point out one of the most conservative states in the country when it comes to, uh, 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 you know, th that sort of a regime for voting is Delaware. I don't even, they don't even have absentee voting in Delaware. You got to vote on election day. Joe Biden's home state, you know, but are they out there saying that, you know, Delaware is, you know, violating people's rights and blah, 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 and they're a bunch of bigots because this is their election law? No, they don't do that. Well, go figure. Uh, but, you know, are we ready now to uh, uh, double down on what it takes with what the rules are and exploit them until they get changed? Because we're not going to change them unless we win. And, but, and I'll point out, you know, a lot of uh, candidates – have been, uh, you know, of the sort that they would echo that. We only ought to vote on Election Day. We don't want to do early voting. But what are you hearing now? Now you're hearing all the Republican candidates point out the need for early voting. We've had from President Trump down to, I think, five other candidates have already done videos for the RNC for our Bank the Vote program saying, get your vote in early got because they want to win and they know the math. You, you brought up President Trump, so I'm going to go down this road with you. And, and I mean, that, that, you know, there's a documentary on Netflix about the Eagles. And the Eagles were kind of known as somewhat of a kind of a crossover. Are they country? Are they folk? Are they rock? We don't know what they are, hmm. but they wanted to be a rock and roll band. Right. So they went and hired uh, Joe Walsh mm -hmm. to be their lead guitarist. And Glenn Fry famously says in the documentary, and we got all of him. I mean, <laughs> we, we, we got a kick-ass rock and roll guitarist, but we got a guy who set the tour bus on fire and tore hotel rooms and <laughs> And all these other sorts of things. In other words, you can't just get this, everything Joe Walsh. That goes with it. you got to get everything that goes with him. And the rest, as we say in Pamplico in Paris, is histoire. Um, but but no, I mean, he, he fundamentally changed that band forever. And it sure. became one of the iconic rock and roll bands. Uh, Hotel California is kind of an anthem of my of my generation. Yep. Well, I mean, you don't get Trump without all of Trump. 
Sure. It cuts both ways, but there, there's no doubt about it. And I'm not defending everything he's never done. I'm not condoning everything he's ever done. He is a very unique political actor. I mean, he's a, a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but I do believe we've crossed the Rubicon in allowing the indicting of a former president, current front runner of a major political party. You're, you're not with the DOJ. You're not with the Trump campaign, mm-hmm. but you are a, a, a well-regarded person responsible for making sure the Republican Party is properly represented and gets its fair shake. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you make of the fact that we've never had an American president indicted, mm-hmm. and now we've got one who's been indicted not once, not twice, but not three times, but four times. But four times. I could use a Lionel Richie analogy, three times mm-hmm. a lady, but it's four times an <laughs> indictment there. Um, but but seriously, I'm, mm-hmm. not, I'm not asking to advocate nor right. nor, nor, nor defend Trump, but, but, but what do sure. you make of that crossing of the Rubicon? Well, couple things one uh what we're seeing without a doubt is a two-faced system of justice in this country okay one for people who have one set of opinions and one for people who is that have a radical anymore to say that i mean it, it, normally with an rnc official says yeah. that wow that's pretty radical there I, the, the fact that it's not radical for me to say that tells you a little bit about where we are in the country right now i mean it's, un, it's you know unfortunate to have to say that definitely uh and you've got a um uh, you know, an administration, even bigger than that. You've got a party. You've got a, a liberal movement in general, a progressive movement, like they call themselves. Uh, they're using extra political means to try to accomplish their ends. Now, this is this is the logical um, endpoint, if it is the endpoint, and it may not be. It'll probably go further before it's all over with. But uh, if you look at where they've come over the years, you can easily see how they got here. I mean, you know, first it was, you know, uh, um, trying to use uh, the national government as a way to change policies at the state level around the country when they couldn't win state legislatures everywhere. So, well, let's just make that, you know, a, 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 you know, outgrowth of national policy. And, you know, so you end up with what, uh, you know, you're talking about Thomas Jefferson being one of your heroes earlier, what Jefferson talked about, you know, uh, the, the uh, national government pressing all the states down into one consolidated mass, you know, at one point. That's where we've come now. You know, everything that's a state issue can be a national issue. If you've got somebody who can get a regulation passed or a law passed to make it that way and then try to, you know, because they, because they can't win locally in legislatures, most legislatures around the country. Uh, then you move on from that to what we see with uh, when they can't win political battles, they go to court and then they get, you know, new rights invented, you know. Uh, and so we're trying to change policy via judicial fiat now. And then you move forward from that. And you get to where we are now, which is using the justice system to, you know, defeat candidates you can't always defeat or movements you can't defeat or to put them, you know, uh, uh, behind the eight ball, politically speaking, you know, for the next election, you know, to try to, I mean, so it, liberalism in general is, has a history in our, in our country a, a, you know, of, of ignoring or move, getting around political impediments by any means necessary. And that's more of what you see it you're seeing now. And you're gonna, in my opinion, you'll continue to see more of it. And what it's the byproduct of that though is what they have to worry about. What's the political, you know, um result of that? I think Biden, Democrats in general, are gonna have a problem with now having turned two standards of justice into an issue. Because these are the people who are seeing this. Are the same folks who are also watching, you know, uh, what happened with the Hunter Biden laptop, and now uh, we'll find out 
Joe Biden sent 5,400 emails to, you know, his son now whenever he was vice president about when and where he was going and what he was doing and so forth while, uh, you know, his son was trying to sell access to folks in other countries and so forth. And, you know, on the other hand, over here, you've got what they're, you know, accusing the former president of, uh, you know, to start to weigh all. I mean, I guess Biden's biggest mistake was he didn't have a server in his bathroom like Hillary that he could take a hammer to, you know, or use bleach bit on or whatever. Uh, you know, all of this now is going to look like two standards for people. It's going to be a political issue in this coming campaign. And it gets down to an issue of fairness. So set all the other political issues aside, you know, general conservative principles, liberal principles, et cetera. Let's talk about, you know, the average guy who's just sitting out there is kind of weighing which way he's going to go. And he's not really politically invested in any different ideology or whatever. What looks fair? Does that look fair? You know, so, I mean, I think. Fairness is going to be an issue in this upcoming campaign. The Democrats are helping, I think, to turn it into an issue. Is it a money play? I mean, do you see this? You're, you're an operative. You'd be an insider, uh, whether you like it or not. I, I guess to some degree I'd be an operative and an insider, <laughs> and I damn sure don't like it. But but, but is this the ability, is there the, the interest by one side to drain the other side of the assets Resources. it takes to be effective in competing in a, in a nationwide campaign? 100%. I mean, because now... Uh, you, you're having to pay to defend yourself in four different legal venues. And that number could be what, Drew? I mean, it could oh, be, I mean, I think he spent $60 million. Before it's over with, tens of millions. And, you know, notice the timing of these lawsuits and when you have to go to court in these different cases, I think is, is almost hits back to back to back, month to month to month in the spring. What's happened in the spring? The nomination contest, you know, before we get to the convention in the summer. Uh, you know, it is all you, you no reasonable person is going to look at that and even you know people who hate Donald Trump or hate any Republican or whatever could look at that and reasonably say well you know that's probably kind of conveniently timed yeah I mean or, or not think that I mean yes 100% totally coordinated and uh, for political purposes uh, one for whatever they think that it would do to a particular candidate from a messaging standpoint and public perception and two what it'll do to them from just basic raw resources to run a campaign. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a new front, essentially, that has been opened up now in national campaigning. Is All right, well, what do we need to do to put this guy behind the legal eight ball and make him have to spend resources over here so he can't spend it over here? And that's what they're doing. Last question, and, and th- this will be an interesting conclusion. Um, it's a competitive nation. I mean, there, it's a divided nation, sure. you know, as much as I don't understand it. One half of the nation disagrees with me. Um, I think I've got all the right answers to all the Only all half? the issues. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> roughly half of the nation thinks I'm crazy. Um, and, but but stick with me for a second. Um, it's it's not going to come down to South Carolina. It's not going to come down to New York and California and Wyoming and Montana. Right. It's going to come down to what states mm-hmm. and how do the Republicans win those five or mm-hmm. six states? win those 250, 400,000 Seinfeld watchers. Mm-hmm. Um, is that is that something you focus on, pay attention to day and night? Sure. And, and are we working toward, you know, how to compete in those states that will decide who the next president is? 100%, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the primary job of the RNC uh, is to be the committee, the national committee that comes together to win the White House, help that nominee win the White House. And then from that, we also work to help Senate committee and the congressional committee win federal races and then help state parties to make sure they have the resources to be competitive where they need to. So all those things kind of flow from one another. Uh, but, again, as I pointed out earlier, we could sit here and bet the mortgage on how 42 states are going to vote. You know, we're going to see all kind of presidential candidates 
uh, between February now February 24th, and after February 24th, we ain't going to see another one for four years or eight years, depending on what happens. And if we do, we got bigger problems. I mean, if they got to spend money in South Carolina, then, you know, just, just you know, I don't know, Katie bar the door. Uh, but you've got about eight of them, and we can sit here and name them. You know, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, you'll have um, uh, New Mexico, Nevada, you know, places like the Georgia that. Georgia swing state. To a degree, uh, you know, and – Virginia, you know, hey, we got a great new governor in Virginia now, who, by the way, I, I think uh, would also be someone worthy of consideration to be somebody's running mate because put Virginia's 13 electoral votes back into play. We hadn't won them in, what, 12 years mm-hmm. now or something? That's huge. Uh, you got to get to 270 to win, you know. Um, so when you start to look around at those states, those are the places where we will be spending most of our resources, period, uh, and doing things like we talked about earlier, the early voting program, bank your vote. That's going to be critical expanding the voting pool in those states we don't expand the voting pool in pennsylvania or wisconsin or michigan uh you know minnesota or other places like that that will work then we're not going to win we got to expand the voting pool um and so we are totally 100 percent focused on trying to help state parties in those places get up to speed and do what they need to do in the meantime because like i pointed out earlier the candidates are going to be doing their thing running for the nomination that's not our job our job sit out here and do the behind-the-scenes stuff to build enough of the infrastructure and the mechanics of all this so that when we got a nominee, they're ready to take advantage of what we've done. It's almost like we're out there building the highway, you know, and then so they got something they can run their car on. Uh, and, and that's where we'll be spending 90% of our time. Drew, I, I, I misled you. I said that was the last question. I got one last question. <laughs> it's not a question as much as it is something I've tried to study like and Columbo consider. Now. Just nah, one more you're, thing, you're right, man. Right. One well, more thing. You're mine. You admitted you, you, you agreed to be mine, so you're mine for a little while. Oh, and I hear a lot about headwinds. From my days in office and my days of covering, we're losing young voters. We're losing female voters. We're losing Hispanic and, and African-American voters. Yeah. The one tailwind I think we have mm-hmm. is reapportionment. Mm-hmm. The 232 that Trump got mm-hmm. is 235 today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The 235 could be 240 or 41 because of the mass exodus from these major American cities Correct. that are democratically governed, right. I've read 232 could be 238. So um, you, you put George in the column, it's a very, I mean, it, I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's a shoe in It's certainly mm-hmm. um, not that. But the one thing we have done is I think put Florida in our column, Ohio's in our column, mm-hmm. 232 becomes 235. There seems to still be a mass exodus from liberal American cities to red states. And they're not bringing their voting proclivities, it seems. It is conservatives right. who are frustrated with that sort. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not asking you a question there, but yeah. well, is that a reality yes. and is that in our favor? 100% and yes and yes. I mean, blue states are getting bluer, red states are getting redder. Okay, so I get uh, every state party around the country gets an update to what we call a new mover file about three or four times a year. New uh, mover file. Yeah, new, no, no Republican movers. I'm my left off that. So, in other words, that that tells me that they'll send us a list and say these are the known Republicans who have moved to your state since X point in time, and they're not yet registered to vote. Y'all need to go get them registered. So we'll take that file. We'll cut it up by House district, by Senate district. Send it to our elected officials. Hey, you need to send these guys a postcard. Tell them how to register to vote. They're, that's low hanging fruit, you know. Um, and I have asked for, uh, and I've seen a breakdown of uh, you know, state by state around the country, you know, shaded blue or shaded red, depending on whether it's a place more Democrats are moving to or Republicans. And red states are getting redder, blue states are getting bluer. 
Uh, and that's, I don't see that trend stopping because you have, as you point out, Republicans living in California going, heck with this. And they're leaving, taking their money with them. Same thing from New York and so forth. You look at all the people who moved into Horry County. I mean, you know, those, somebody that used to do some, uh, economic development work, state government told me one time, you can draw a line about, you know, say 40 miles North of Charleston, everything from there up to the North Carolina border, blue collar retirees, everything from there down to Hilton Head, white collar retirees, most of them Republicans. Uh, and same thing up around Greenville and say, you know, and Lake Oconee and up in that area, you know, places that used to be solid Democrats, solid Republican today, a lot of new people from other places. Um, so you have that element of that that's working in our favor. Uh, eventually that works in our favor when reapportionment, as you point out, when, you know, different States pick up more electoral votes, like we got one more 10 years ago. So instead of eight, we've got nine now. Um, you know, but you've also got, you know, the issue of, uh, as we pointed out, talked about earlier, these different groups of people who have been taken for granted for a long time by the Democrat Party that are, you know, on a percentage basis, they may, they're still voting Democrat on balance, not as much as they used to. And, you know, when you talk about winning a state by 50,000 votes out of several million cast, that's a big deal. You know, uh, again, look at Michigan, look at Wisconsin, how close those places were last time. Um, You know, we've got Hispanic votes. I mean, again, in 2020, we got more votes from the African-American community and the Hispanic community than any time since Richard Nixon. That's huge. Uh, And so, you know, but for the people who will say, you know, we're losing young folks and we're losing, you know, usually the one I get the most is young people. Oh, we need to get more young people voting Republican. You can go back in time all the way back to the 70s and you can find Pew polls that's shown the breakdown, age breakdown of, you know, they consider themselves Republican or Democrat. And back then they were saying, Republicans aren't winning enough young people. we got to win more young people. Well, what happens? Young people become old people. You know, they get married. Uh, they get a job. They wonder who FICA is and why he's taking all their money. You know, and they look at stuff like they, they have kids and they start going to church. You know, these things that life happens to people and they get more conservative. And that's been the same as today as it was back in the 70s. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to work to try to get more young people. We do. Uh, but I'm saying a lot of this is life oriented. That's very well explained. Appreciate your time. Yes, sir. And I mean, that's Happy to be here. I'm a man of my word the second time, not, not, <laughs> not as much the first. Drew McKissick, SCGOP chairman and co-chair of the National Party, agreed yes, to sit with us for uh, longer than he probably imagined. But um, <laughs> but thank you nonetheless. I do want to remind uh, our viewers and listeners of our sponsors, Mickey Finns, uh, Marlboro PD Electric, Carolina Bank, Pepsi of Florence. Um, Mickey Finn's comes to mind on this Labor Day weekend. I tell people the Jefferson's bourbon, it, it, it'll make you want to quote the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the first sip will make you want to play. The, the fourth or fifth glass, you, you begin to kind of hear those bells of freedom ring that, uh, that, that Jeffersonians like to, like to think about. We'll get together one of these days and talk about Jeffersonian Hamiltonian government. Yes, sir. That, that'll be we'll another interesting. Thank you, my friend. Good All seeing right. you. Fantastic. We'll get out of here.